If you want to know what a supernatural life is all about, one of the best places to turn is the book of Acts in the New Testament. Pentecost comes, it was mentioned earlier this morning, and once Pentecost hits, God moves in such mysterious, majestic, but supernatural ways. Sometimes we take them for granted, sometimes we don't recognize them. So this morning we want to focus in on one section in the book of Acts, from Acts 8 and 9, where there's three scenes in a row in which we learn different things about different ways God moves supernaturally and how important it is for us to recognize them not only then but in our lives. It's a long section of Scripture, all of chapter 8 and chapter 9, and hopefully some of you saw the announcement that came out midweek and read through it so you got the full sweep of it. But because of its length, I'm not going to read all of it. I'm simply going to read three snippets this morning, one from each scene, and then we'll dive into it more deeply as we launch into the Word. But to begin with, Acts, the 8th chapter, reading first, verses 14 to 17. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the Word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Moving into the second scene, we'll move down to verse 34 of the 8th chapter. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Moving ahead a few more verses, the opening of chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God lives forever. Amen. During World War II, a communications officer was looking for a telegrapher. Now, in case there's some of you are too young to know what that is, that, that, that's a telegraph. It used to be the way we communicated before everybody had telephones. It's important to know that to understand this story. So the officer was looking for a telegrapher. Because the fighting was heavy and the communications office was a long way from the front line, a large number of soldiers showed up at the appointed time to apply for the job. They all sat there, and the only sounds they heard was the dots and dashes of a telegraph machine. But suddenly one of the soldiers jumped up, ran into the inner office, 
And the rest of the soldiers were astounded, wondering what was going on. And they wondered even more so when all of a sudden out came this soldier, and next to him was the officer in charge, who then announced that this soldier had the job. The other soldiers were dumbfounded and wondered, how could that happen? The officer said, it's like this. While you were sitting here, I sent a message in code that said, anyone who can read this, come into my office immediately. This man understood the message, therefore he's best qualified for the job. God sends us many messages, and in a variety of ways. But too often we're not tuned in, or we don't understand the language or the approach. We're simply not sensitive to the supernatural ways in which God works. And so we miss some great opportunities to more fully be the supernatural people he wants us to be. And in this section in the book of Acts, particularly, we see God work in three different scenes through three conversion experiences. And it's important for us to understand their dynamics for our lives. So we move to scene one, where God patiently awaits our surrender. The first conversion experience is that of the Sumerians. The focus is on Simon the sorcerer. People are impressed by his, his magical powers, and they say it's all because he's in tune with the divine. They're giving the gods the credit for it. But then along comes Philip, who preaches the good news of Jesus, and people believe and are baptized. And then notice what happens. Verse 13 of chapter 8. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. The object of our belief is critical. Many people have been raised within the church They know the basic facts of of Jesus and the cross, and they believe. And yet, their belief has more to do with things that they can see, the things they can touch, things that overwhelm them with miraculous healings and speaking in tongues and and seeing angels and large crowds and big choirs and all the mass excitement. And yet, not much is happening in their own lives. God may have done a work on them, but he's not able to do a work through them. Imagine, for example, being in a building and you see flames coming through the walls and the ceiling. It's easy to stand there and believe the building is on fire. But unless we run away, that belief doesn't do us any good at all. So as this incident continues, we're told that the staff at the denominational headquarters heard about all these baptisms taking place, and they said, we need to check it out. So they sent Peter and John to do just that. Verse 15. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now listen. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. The supernatural was not yet part of their lives. It's possible to believe, but not experience the power. And to be baptized, but not be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. It's possible to believe, but not experience the power. And to be baptized, but not be filled with the Holy Spirit. Author Isabel Champ related an experience she had following a trip along the Congo River near Cairo, Egypt. 
She noticed a, a water buffalo that was yoked to a center post, and it was just walking in circles around the center post, and she realized that that was powering a wheel, which was a water wheel sending water into the fields. When she got home from her trip, she was going through the pictures, and she noticed as she looked at the picture of that scene, in the background she saw power lines. And it occurred to her there was no need for the buffalo. Apparently they believed in the power, they just hadn't yet submitted to it. I contend that explains why there's such a high percentage of people who say they believe in God or even believe in, in Jesus and maybe even go to church, but at the same time express so little connection between their belief and their moral and ethical behavior and the choices they make. And that brings us to verse 17. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. In order to experience the power, we must surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord. It's not sufficient just to have Jesus as a trophy. We must have Him as Lord of our lives. God wants us to be in intimate relationship with Him. He wants to be our true soulmate. God is not someone to manipulate. He's someone to obey. The phrase, Thy will be done, should not be something we utter when all else fails and we finally say, Okay, your will be done. Rather, the phrase, Thy will be done, should be our marching cry each and every day and each and every circumstance. Lord, Thy will be done. Because Jesus wants our hearts and surrender is the key to experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. I love the old story about a farmer who owned a mule that was very important to him because it was an excellent plowing animal. One day the mule got sick, so the farmer called in the veterinarian who came and took a look at the mule and turned to the farmer and he gave him some extremely large pills and he said, give him one of these three times a day and he'll recover. The pills were large and so the, the farmer asked the vet, he said, how can I get it in the mule's throat? And the vet said, oh, it's easy. You just find a piece of pipe wide enough to fit the pill into, put one end of the pipe into the mule's mouth, quickly put the pill in and blow in and it'll be down his throat before he knows what's happening. Sounded simple enough. But a little while later, the farmer was in the vet's office and the vet looked at him and said, you look terrible, what's wrong? The farmer replied, the mule blew first. <laughs> now why do I tell such a crazy story? Because I truly believe that far too often we try to blow our will down God's throat and place it in God's heart. We say, God, here I go, bless me. God, make sure what I do works out. God, favor me. And God blows back and sets us back and says, no, no. This is the way it needs to be. And we're stunned and surprised. Like many of you, I was baptized as an infant. I was raised in a wonderful Christian environment and family. And by grace, never strayed too far from the faith. Compare myself probably to a Timothy. But as I look back over my life, I clearly see now and understand that my profession of faith was truly the moment I surrendered to Jesus, even if I didn't fully understand all the implications of what I was doing. 
But I know it was because as I look back upon my life, I now see that from that moment on, Jesus took control of my life and said, now I've got you. And I began to live a supernatural life. God patiently awaits our surrender. In order to experience the power, we must surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord. So my first question to you today is, have you done so? Have you truly done so? We move to scene two. And there we discover that God personally answers our seeking. Come now to verse 26 of chapter 8. Philip has, has this exciting ministry going on in Samaria, and he's called away from that. God simply says, take the road to Gaza. And with no more direction than that, he sets out on the road. But God, of course, was already preparing someone who needed Philip's ministry. Verse 27. On his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Isn't it amazing that when we're seeking how often God provides the right people at the right time and place. Because God has a deep concern for individuals, he takes Philip away from this exciting, effective ministry and prepares him to speak to one single person who is seeking him. As I look back over my life, I can clearly see how God, at each significant point and turning of my life, sent me the right person at the right time. One of the most dramatic for me was when I was getting ready to graduate from seminary, and I, had, I may have shared before, I had two calls at that point. One to a young, exciting, fast-growing church that was just outside of Grand Rapids, and I had worked there for a year during my seminary training. It would enable me and Barb to, to stay in the area and be with family and friends. The other call was to a very traditional Reformed church in northwest Iowa where we didn't know a soul. I'm sure it was going to be an easy decision to make. Night came when I had to make the final decision. Bar went to work as a nurse at the hospital. I put a young son to bed and I sat down in the recliner and thought I just need one final confirmation from the Lord. And then I fell asleep. I've done that in the recliner a lot since then, but that's another story. But this time I woke up with the tears streaming down my cheeks because I had an inner conviction that I was to go to Iowa. So I said, okay, tomorrow I'll write the letter. The next day I was getting ready to write the letter and the telephone rang and I went over and picked, the, picked it up. Those were the days you had to go and pick up the telephone that was hooked into the wall. And I picked up the phone and it was a dear, wonderful elder from Iowa calling and saying, I figured this would be the day you were going to make your final decision and write your letter. I just want to remind you how badly we need you here. Supernatural. Right person, right place, right time. It's amazing, isn't it? But I want you to think for a moment not about my life, but about your life. How many times in your seeking has God sent another person to stand with you, to comfort you, to challenge you, to teach you, to strengthen you, 
When we try our best to sincerely walk with God, when we actively, intensely seek Him, He provides the right people at the right time and place. But here's the thing. These people aren't the answers to our seeking. Philip knew that that Jesus is the answer to our seeking. Look at verse 35. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. He spoke Jesus to the man. Whatever our need or question, Jesus is the answer. Scripture tells us Jesus is the answer to the law and the prophets. He's the answer to the cry of our human hearts. And not just for Ken's sake, but because it fits, I want to go to the book of Job. Now the book of Job, obviously Job is before the cross. We're on the other side of the cross. But my whole point here is Jesus is the answer to our seeking. So listen. Job said, how should man be just with God? The New Testament says, Jesus Jesus was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Job queried, if a man dies, shall he live again? Jesus said, I am he that lives and was dead and am alive forevermore. Because I live, you live. Job pondered, oh, that I knew where I might find God. Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the answer to our seeking. So God provides the right people at the right time and place to bring Jesus to us. The columnist Abby, in her Dear Abby column, one day shared a letter from R.T. Holland of Los Angeles who told of an article he had read in the medical section of Time magazine. The magazine cited a man who went to a psychiatrist complaining that, that he was always hearing radio broadcasts. The psychiatrist thought he'd humor him a little bit and ask him what he was listening to right then. The man quickly said, I'm, I'm listening to Rudy Valley broadcasting from the Steel Pier in Atlantic City. Psychiatrist continued to question him, and after much questioning, he discovered that the man worked in a glass bottle factory and had gotten some silica crystals in his dental cavities. And the combination of silica, saliva, and bridge work had literally transformed this man's mouth into a crystal radio receiver. He was sent to a dentist who corrected everything, and then the man was off the air. We don't want to go off the air. God has planted something in us. He's put a receiver inside of us, and we need to stay tuned to God's frequency. And we do it through the Holy Spirit who is implanted within us. And to get Him there, to receive Him there, to keep Him there, we must consistently seek God. I had the joy of serving in Grand Rapids for a large number of years, and We'd been there for a number of those years, and we were still excited about the vision and the ministry and what was happening in the church. And all of a sudden, I got a call to a church in Indiana. Again, I figured it was a no-brainer kind of call. We weren't ready to leave. In fact, we were talking about retiring in Grand Rapids. But to be sure, I was right. Over the next couple of weeks, probably more earnestly than I had ever done before, I took it to the Lord in prayer. And as I did so, I kept getting this uneasy feeling that Maybe Indiana was the place to be. So strong was it that on the weekend I needed to make the decision, I said to Barb, I think we're going to Indiana. 
That next day, we had a communion service as part of our worship, and I had to fight back the tears as I thought, this might be the last time I'm serving communion to the people I've grown to love. And after that service, our little granddaughter who lived in the area came running up to me and threw her arms around me. And I thought, this isn't going to happen anymore. We're going to Indiana. That next day, that Monday, I sat down to type that dreaded letter. And it's as if my fingers were frozen and I couldn't type. And so for kicks, I said, well, maybe I ought to write a letter of declension. And suddenly the words flowed and the letter was typed. And I realized God was saying to me, I just wanted you, I just wanted you to seek and surrender. I wanted to be sure and I wanted you to be sure you were ready to do my will. And you are. So stay who you are and keep at it. That's supernatural. But it comes from intense seeking, which I confess to you I have done far too little of in my life. But my point this morning is, your seeking can be supernatural as well. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Colossians, third chapter, first three verses. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life hidden with Christ in God. So the question is, how are you seeking God? What are your burning questions? What are the key issues with which you wrestle? What is it you're seeking? Remember, Jesus promised, Matthew 7.10, that the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. And so when you feel powerless or inadequate for the for the situation or task at hand, when you're uncertain of your next step, when you're confused and not sure where to turn, remember God is patiently waiting for those who seek Him. So seek Him intensely. And then comes scene three. The familiar conversion of Saul to Paul. And we find another way God works. God powerfully arrests our sight. Acts 9, verses 3 and 4. As Saul neared Damascus, and you'll recall he had been about the business of of persecuting and even killing Christians. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The tracker of Christians was stopped dead in his tracks. And in the same way, God stops us in our tracks, especially if our tracks are running away from Him. Think of Jonah. He ran on his own track until God sent a boat and a whale. Think of the thief on the cross. He was on his own track, on his way to hell, until he met Jesus and God stopped him in his tracks. We see it around us all the time if we look for it. So maybe there's a young man who strikes it rich in business, lives the good and the the wild life until his business collapses because God stops him in his tracks. Or there's a young woman without a care in the world who runs in and out of relationships at will and suddenly she's felled by a cancerous tumor. God has stopped her in her tracks. 
We live in a country which promotes freedom with no responsibility and allows anything and everything in the media and on the Internet, and then children kill children and adults molest young children. Abortion becomes an industry, and God stops us in our tracks. We promote sexual freedom and same-sex relationships only to be confronted with AIDS and monkeypox and sexual identity confusion and the moral and physical breakdown of the family. God stops us in our tracks. We think we've arrived at the top of the world because of all our technological savvy, and yet we're brought up short by foreign and terrorist hackers. God stops us in our tracks. I like the way Robert Browning put it. Just when we are safest, there's a sunset touch, a flower bell, someone's death. And lo, he stands before us blocking our path so that we cannot go on until we have dealt with him. God knows we need to be aware of our wrong tracks. Chapter 9, verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. God spoke Jesus to Paul. Saul, Paul, needed to know he was not just killing people opposed to his way of thinking, but he was, in fact, attacking Jesus of Nazareth. God will do whatever he must do to turn us around. Aisha was born in Amman, Jordan, to a strict Islamic family. Her father abused her verbally, said things to her that should never be said to a daughter. She found that her religion offered her no comfort, no peace during those painful years. Instead, she felt a strong condemnation from Islam. So when Aisha and her family moved to the United States, she was desperate to be loved ended up becoming pregnant at age 17. She knew that by Islamic law, her father was under the burden to kill her as an honor killing for dishonoring the family. Fearing for her life, she decided to get an abortion. She carried the shame of it for years. And during that time, once again, she found in Islam her sins unforgivable. She'd been taught was continuing to be taught she was hated by Allah. Suffering from depression and suicidal thoughts, she was searching relentlessly for forgiveness and for hope, and and one day she, she cried out again to Allah for mercy, and when she did, she heard a voice say just one word, Jesus. God spoke Jesus to Aisha, and hearing that voice from heaven She then turned and offered a prayer to Jesus, asking him to reveal himself to her. As she later explained, that was the first time I felt any sense of peace was when I prayed to Jesus. And that supernatural experience led her to Romans 8, 5, where she found the truth that she was forgiven, which she desperately needed to hear. So what is the wrong track along which you might be traveling right now? The track of excuses for not serving in a certain way, for not loving a certain person or forgiving someone. The track of a poor attitude towards someone that you should be loving or a coworker or a friend or a classmate. 
the track of a broken vow to a mate, to the church, or to God, the track of immorality or impure thoughts, If Jesus put a stop sign in your life right now, where would he place it? God wants to arrest our sight and get us on his tracks because he has a better plan for us. Listen to what Paul was told, verse 6 of chapter 9. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Meanwhile, we're told... As usual, God is already at work preparing somebody to receive and mentor Paul. Verse 15, the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer. Paul was given a mentor to guide him into the Christian faith, to help him prepare for getting along with those whom he had been persecuting and to get ready to deal with those who now would persecute him. Ananias, of course, was a little skeptical about all of this. After all, Saul was one person Christians were to avoid. But God said to him in verse 11, Ask for a man named Saul, for he is praying. Saul had changed. He was now Paul. He had been reared in the right tradition. He had been taught all the right stuff. He had just been on the wrong track. And now God had changed him. And he was a chosen instrument of God. And Paul's intensity, his determination, his knowledge, his skill of debating would be used by God for the glory of God. The far less, far, far less dramatic in Paul's conversion, my call to ministry Stop me in my tracks. God spoke to me one night as I slept. So quietly I hardly heard him. I got up in the morning my freshman year of college and simply wrote a note to my parents saying, I'm going into the ministry. But it was at that point in time, as undramatic as it seemed, that I recognized I had been on the wrong track. My future was not in music. My future was not in broadcasting. My future was ministry, walking the paths God put before me. It was all supernatural. I share some of these stories of my life today, not to say, oh, look at me. I share them to say I haven't done it often enough, and every time I tell a story, I realize I need to do it more. But I tell them to say, if he did it to me, he can do it to you question is, how does God want to use you in your supernatural life? There's a call and a purpose in God's saving. We are not saved to be sensations. We are saved to be servants. Some are called to public view. Paul, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Moody, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, and so many others. But that doesn't make their value any greater or ours any less. Some are given more prominence than others, but they're equal in value before God. We may place different values on them. God does not. Think of it this way. Is there really any difference between the first ball Aaron Judge hit for home run number one this year and the ball he hit for number 62? And if for number 62, they'll pay millions of dollars for the baseball. If he hadn't hit number one, he'd never hit number 62. We tend to put more value on some things than others. 
but God does not. Paul wrote to Timothy, In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, some are for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, prepared to do any good work. To fulfill the purpose for which God has created us and to which he has called us is the greatest honor we can bear. There's a young minister who pastored a church in a great industrial city. The most active and generous person in the church was a, a woman who was married to one of the most prominent and wealthy men in the city. He, however, had nothing to do to the church, did nothing for it, gave nothing to it. As the years passed, that became a burden on the heart of this young pastor. So he decided one day he would make an appointment and go and have a visit with this wealthy man. The day came and he went into this beautiful office and face to face with this austere man. He sat down and shared in simplest terms the gospel with this man. And as he finished doing it, he said, I think you ought to do something about this one way or the other. And then there was dead silence. Not a word was spoken. The man didn't make a single move. So the young preacher thought he'd repeat it again, so he, he again shared the good news of Jesus. He spoke Jesus to him, and he added a little more to it, and then he, he issued the same challenge, and then again there was silence and no movement. He decided to give it one final try, and so he shared it again, and he shared the challenge again, and it was followed by silence. Trying now to find some way to gracefully leave the office, he was about to leave when Suddenly the man moved and grabbed a notepad and wrote something down and he handed the note to the young pastor and it said, I am so deeply moved, I cannot speak. It was the first time an adult had ever frankly given out the good news of Jesus before him. He became a Christian, a member of the church, one of the great Christian leaders in that city. This young pastor was but the vessel chosen and used by God to stop this wealthy man in his tracks. And God wants us to do the same, to be instruments and vessels that can help stop people in their tracks. So God works in supernatural ways. And he wants us to be supernatural people, filled with his supernatural Holy Spirit to powerfully speak the name of Jesus. Second Chronicles 16.9 captures our mood today so well. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect towards him. He's looking for people who are supernatural. And reflecting on that verse, Oswald Chambers wrote, God is looking for a man or a woman whose heart will always be set on him and who will trust him for all he desires to do. God is eager to work more mightily now than he ever has through any soul. The clock of the centuries points to the eleventh hour. The world is waiting yet to see what God can do through a consecrated soul. Not the world alone, but God himself is waiting for one who will be more fully devoted to him than any who have ever lived, who will be willing to be nothing that Christ may be all 
who will grasp God's own purposes and taking his humility and faith, his love and power, will, without hindering, continue to let God do exploits. That would be a supernatural life. And the point is, it can be mine and it can be yours. We just need to understand God's language so we don't miss the message. So as you leave here today, remember God patiently awaits your surrender. What is it you need to surrender to Him? Remember God personally answers your seeking. For what are you seeking and searching? Have you brought it to God openly, honestly, intensely? And remember God powerfully arrests your sight. On what wrong track might you be traveling? Where do you need to stop and get on God's track? God wants to use you as his vessel and instrument to speak the name of Jesus so he can save people. Do you know him well enough to hear his message and call? This is the moment. Today is the day of salvation. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let's pray as I pray in the spirit of Paul. God of our Lord Jesus Christ, our glorious Father, I pray that that you will give to each of us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. Dear people of God, I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. For this reason I pray before the Father from whom every family on earth is named, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. God, speak to each and every one of us who hear this message and this word. Where commitments need to be made, Holy Spirit, prompt them. Where decisions need to be made, Holy Spirit, inform them. Where lives need to be changed, Holy Spirit, empower them. We surrender to you, Lord. We seek your face and your will. Put us on your track that the world may know of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.